Hey everyone, it's David Duchovny. Do you ever feel like a failure? Trust me, I get it. Hell, I've spent my whole life almost feeling like a failure. It's appropriate though, because on Fail Better, my new podcast with Lemonada Media, exploring the world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives is the whole point. Each week I'll chat with artists, athletes, actors, and experts about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, I hope we can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out on May 7th, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, are you ready to add a sprinkle of joy to your day? Then you need to check out Add to Cart. Hi, I'm Sujan Pak. And I'm Kulap Vilaisak. We're your hosts, and on this show, we talk about the things we buy, the things we buy into, and what it says about who we are. That's right. Each week, we're going to have some honest and maybe, you know, little TMI conversations about all the fabulous, weird, wonderful things we're adding to or ditching from our carts. You know, we talk about beauty products, latest health trends, philosophies we're passionate about. Nothing is off limits on this podcast. We're diving deep into everything we and our guests buy into and exploring what it reveals about who we truly are. We're going to decide what's worth the investment, be it money or emotions. Add to Cart from Lemonada Media has new episodes out on Tuesdays, wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Hey friends, it's August 11th, 2023. Welcome to Be Interesting, where we break down the viral and very interesting news you may have missed. I'm V Spear, and today, a new pill could help the half a million women who suffer from postpartum depression each year. Thousands of beagles are celebrating one year of freedom after being rescued from an inhumane breeding facility. Then I'm joined by author and NPR culture critic Aisha Harris, whose new book mines the pop culture benchmarks of her 90s childhood to analyze the media tropes that shaped us all. All that and more on today's Be Interesting from Lemonada Media. Let's be smart together. And now for some headlines. But wait, before that, we got to do a little housekeeping. I have an announcement, and that is that I am joining the Washington Post TikTok through the end of the year while Dave is out on paternity leave. Now, this new gig doesn't change anything about under-the-desk news. All of that is going to stay the same. I'm just going to go do my news auntie best and help my pal out so he can enjoy the first few months of being a new hashtag girl dad. So look for me and Carmela over there on the Washington Post TikTok from now until the end of the year. And also, y'all, I know it's been nearly a week, but I cannot stop talking about the Alabama Riverboat Brawl, the Montgomery Mollywop. And every day we are learning more and more about it. Like just today, I learned that those same white boaters had given the captain of the Harriet II a similar issue in the past. And they had this like habit of blocking the riverboat from docking. And for 45 minutes before that dock fight happened, the white boaters were, according to the bystanders, shouting obscenities and intentionally ignoring orders to move their boat, which is just hella rude, quite honestly. But the worst part of this is that Mr. Richard Roberts, who was one of the white men who was arrested, already had a warrant pending for striking a 16-year-old white boy in the past. Some folks just can't keep their hands to themselves, it seems. And lastly... Why is it that we're all able to laugh about this? It's because we feel like justice was served. It's because we didn't see tragedy. We saw community coming together. And that is because no one had a gun. It's rare that we see an incident resolve, even a very heated one, without some greater systemic tragedy happening. And this was just a good old-fashioned community-building exercise, you know? So while I don't condone violence, I do have a greater appreciation for folding chairs, hat tosses, and skipping. Now, let's get into the headlines. 
You may remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about some good news in the world of women's health. A new blood test can help predict earlier and more accurately if someone will develop severe preeclampsia during their pregnancy. Well, there is more good news for mothers. The FDA just approved the first ever pill specifically created to treat postpartum depression. I know. I like... I clutched my pearls when I read this because postpartum is something that affects so many women in my personal life, and I'm sure in yours as well. And I didn't even know they were working on something like this. So I was like, this is amazing. Because there is like one in 10 women who give birth in the United States that experience depression during or after pregnancy. Symptoms sometimes include intense anxiety, shame, guilt, impaired sleep, panic attacks, and sometimes even suicidal thoughts or attempts. Not only is it awful for the mom, but it can have rippling effects for the baby if the mom isn't able to bond with them during those early days of life. This pill claims to help. It'll be marketed under the brand name Zerzuve. I think I said that right. And it's different from general antidepressants in a number of ways. First, it's only meant to be taken for two weeks, as opposed to those antidepressants that we have to take for months or years. And we do have to take them. So if you didn't take yours yet, go take your meds. Doctors hope the temporary nature will lead to more women being open to this kind of treatment. Plus, data from clinical trials show the pill eases depression significantly faster than typical antidepressants. They can find relief in a matter of days compared to weeks or even months. And since Zerzuve is explicitly designed for postpartum depression, experts say it could reduce stigma around the condition by reminding mothers that this is a real biological thing. It's not the baby blues or some other thing that they made up to try and blame themselves for. This is a real thing and real help is here. Zerzuve was developed and produced by a company out of Massachusetts called Sage Therapeutics in partnership with Biogen. The companies haven't announced the price for the pill yet, but whatever it is, it's going to be cheaper and easier than what the treatment has been up until now. Have you ever heard of what the treatment is up until now for postpartum depression? It was a 60-hour-long IV infusion at a hospital, and it cost like $34,000. Like, yeah, okay, that's exactly what I want after delivering a baby is to spend more time in the hospital getting a 60-hour-long IV infusion for my depression and then having to pay $34,000 for it, which is sure to just only cause more depression. Let's be honest here. So it's no surprise that fewer than 1,000 patients have ever even received that treatment. But with the pill soon to hit the market, hopefully more mothers will get the care that they deserve. Let's turn now to one particular mother who was never properly thanked for the medical innovations she unknowingly helped to discover. Until now. I'm talking, of course, about Henrietta Lacks. She was a young black mother of five who, in 1951, visited the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, complaining of vaginal bleeding. Doctors discovered a large tumor in her cervix, and when they went to take the biopsy, they saved a sample of her cancer cells without her knowledge or her permission. She ended up dying of cervical cancer shortly after, but her cells went on to change the world. Whereas other cells collected from patients would quickly die, lax cells doubled every 20 to 24 hours. They were the first cells to be easily shared and multiplied in a lab setting. They are still used today to study the effects of toxins, drugs, hormones, and viruses on the growth of cancer cells without experimenting on humans. Johns Hopkins says they've been used to test the effects of radiations and poisons, study the human genome, and they even played a crucial role in the development of the polio and COVID-19 vaccines. And that's all amazing and great. But it's also kind of messed up, right? I mean, this woman who changed history and made biotech companies very rich had no say in any of it, and her family was never compensated. Fast forward more than 70 years after her death to earlier this month, when her descendants reached a settlement with one such company that profited from her cells. Lawyers for the Lacks family say that the Massachusetts-based company Thermo Fisher Scientific Incorporated reaped billions of dollars from a racist medical system by commercializing her cells without her consent. The case was filed in 2021 by civil rights attorney Ben Crump, who has also represented the families of George Floyd, Trayvon Martin, and Breonna Taylor. One section of the lawsuit read, quote, A great portion of early American medical research is founded upon non-consensual experimentation upon systemically oppressed people. 
Side note, if you're unfamiliar, it would be worth it to Google the origins of gynecology in America, and specifically the man people refer to as the father of gynecology. I mean, talk about racist and unethical. Ugh, it's a horror story, but I digress. The settlement was announced on August 1st, which would have been Mrs. Lack's 103rd birthday. While the terms of the settlement remain confidential, the lawsuit has demanded that any money the company made off commercializing the cell line should be delivered to the estate. Lawyers have hinted at similar claims against other companies. So this probably won't be the last settlement we see. Lax's grandson, Alfred Lax Carter Jr., was at the announcement in Baltimore. He told the Associated Press, quote, it was a long fight over 70 years, and Henrietta Lacks gets her day. Speaking of racist systems from our past, what are we going to do about exclusionary housing laws? Take single-family zoning laws, for example. They've been around for over a century when cities across the country enacted policies that said only single-family houses could be built in certain parts of town. It was a way for homeowners to protect their properties from a factory or an apartment complex going up right next door. But it also reinforces racial and class segregation, and it makes home ownership for some Americans downright impossible. A CNN report found that today, roughly 75% of land that is zoned for housing in American cities is for private single family homes. 75% for private single family homes only? Do three out of four of us really need a white picket fence and enough grass to spend our weekends obsessively mowing? I'd be happy with just a cute little patio and some potted plants if it meant I could actually afford something in this crazy housing market. Let's practice being happy with less people. The U.S. housing market is short some 6.5 million homes. And now local and state governments are rethinking their single-family zoning laws in order to meet demand. And personally, I'm here for it. In order to combat the NIMBYs poo-pooing anything that's not another cookie-cutter tract home in their neighborhood – YIMBY organizations, short for Yes in My Backyard, have sprouted up all over the country, and they're advocating for new, denser, more inclusive housing options in single-family neighborhoods. So what are some of the ideas that they're floating? First off, many states are getting rid of single-family zoning laws altogether, like California, Washington, and Maine. We don't have the space for that anymore. And some cities, like Minneapolis and Santa Barbara, are legalizing small units and backyards so that families with extra space can rent to, say, an elderly person or a young couple. Others are legalizing duplexes and triplexes where once only single-family homes were allowed. And a few cities are incentivizing developers to build affordable housing near public transit lines. These changes aren't going to happen overnight, but with enough momentum across much of the United States, let's hope our neighborhoods will turn a little less pleasant, Phil, and a little more Mr. Rogers. Hello, new neighbor. So let's do as Mr. Rogers does and end on a happy note. You may remember a mission to rescue 4,000 beagles from a mass breeding facility in Virginia last year. The facility was cited for tons of animal welfare violations, and I'll spare you all the gruesome details, but the dogs were being bred and sold to labs for animal experimentation. Some of these dogs had never even touched grass. They were known as the Envigo litter. Well, it's been a year since the Humane Society removed the litter from the facility and tried to find them happy homes. So let's check in on how the beags are doing, shall we? Four of the dogs just celebrated their first freedom birthday together at a joint birthday party. This according to the Homeward Trails Animal Rescue in Virginia. The canines wore dog-sized birthday crowns, played with toys, and shared a birthday cake. It was a pet-friendly recipe, of course. Five of them marked the anniversary with a reunion in North Carolina. They posed with their humans sitting on grass and wearing bandanas that said, Envigo Survivor. One of the dogs is living a luxurious life alongside Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. When the news broke last year, the couple decided to adopt one of the mother dogs since older dogs are often harder to find a home for. And they named her Mama Mia. Families of the adopted dogs said it took a while for the pups to get used to their new surroundings and to become less fearful. But a year and many, many doggy treats later, life is sweet. You know who made my life a little bit sweeter this week? My next guest, Aisha Harris. She's the author of Wannabe and the host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. We're going to talk about all things Spice Girls, boy bands, and millennial nostalgia right after the break. Stick around. We will see you then. 
Hi, I'm June Diane Raphael. And I'm Jessica St. Clair. And each week we are sitting down to talk all about life's twists, turns, and absurdities on The Deep Dive. From exploring the depths of TikTok, which is our only news source, to navigating the complexities of grief and loss, we are just two best friends behind a mic processing life together. This podcast is all about finding the silver linings in the madness. So get ready for unfiltered conversations about motherhood, careers, pop culture, and everything in between. Here at The Deep Dive, we're all about community. We believe in the power of sharing experiences and the strength that comes from supporting one another. And we would love to have you with us. So be sure to join us every Wednesday on The Deep Dive from Lemonada Media, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out now from Lemonada Media. Okay, everyone, we are back with a great conversation featuring NPR culture critic Aisha Harris. Now, you may know Aisha as the co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, and I am delighted to have Aisha on the show today to talk about her debut book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. The book is out now and features a collection of Aisha's essays about pop culture and her identity as a Black woman coming of age in the 90s and early 2000s. We get into what our favorite movie moments are and about what it means for us as an audience to be critical consumers of pop culture. Oh, and for fans of a certain doll movie, there's an important segment about Aisha feeling Mattel cinematic universe fatigue and what we can expect from the film industry in coming years. Here's my conversation with Aisha Harris. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I am good. I'm great. It is such a joy to speak with you today. I've been, I've been reading your book for the last couple of weeks now since I got it in. <laughs> awesome. Now, you're on the West Coast, but you were born and raised in Connecticut, right? Yes. We're in Connecticut because uh, I, too, hail from the nutmeg state. Oh, okay. Hamden? Hamden? All right. Hamden. I'm from Shelton. I'm from the okay. Valley. Not a lot of people get out of the Valley, and yet here we are, Valley and Valley adjacent. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so given your expertise on pop culture and on the 90s, which is just something that all millennials love, and I'm so excited that we're like in this period now where it feels like movies and television and toys are catering to millennials, I felt like it was catering to boomers forever, and it's like our turn. It's our turn now. <laughs> I wanted nice. to get your hot take on a couple of things that are just happening in pop culture today and just see kind of like what you think it's going to mean for the kids growing up now. Let's do it. So first, Beyonce's on tour. And there's been a lot of talk about the Beyonce tour, not just like how incredibly produced it is, the fact that her daughter is involved, but they are blaming Beyonce for why there isn't a recession because people are so willing to spend money on hotels and travel and costumes and dinner and tickets and getting together with friends to attend the Beyonce show. It's also been a boom for international travel, because if you can't get the tickets at like Madison Square Garden, it's cheaper to like fly to see her in Brazil. What do you think about Beyonce's tour? Well, I'm seeing her this month in August. I'm very excited. I spent way too much money. See, there it um, is. So I'm part of the problem. It's me, uh, to quote another person whose tickets are astronomically high. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because um, I think that, you know, first of all, blaming any one thing or person on a recession is just ludicrous. Uh, or, or there not being a recession is just is ludicrous. Um, funny enough, I was just reading a headline today about how Taylor Swift coming to L.A., some people are trying to urge her not to perform because there's not enough, like all the hotel workers, all the service oh. workers are on strike right now. Oh. Um, so they're like, show your support. Also, yeah. we're very understaffed. We can't handle this. Um, so it, I think it's really fascinating the way our pop stars, especially those at the level of a Taylor Swift or a Beyonce, um, are really kind of dominating our, um, not just our cultural obsession, but like our economic <laughs> 
<laughs> livelihoods. And, you know, I've seen and heard of people spending thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on these tickets. And I'm just like, oof. I, I mean, if I could, I would. Um, I think people should be able to spend money how they want to. But I also think that there should be there should be a cap on how much you can actually spend on a ticket to see someone. Um, because this is, you know, I believe in spending money on experiences, uh, but I also believe in not going broke to do that. <laughs> very so. true. What was your first concert? Do you remember? The very first concert that I went to that, like, I wanted to go to, my mom took me to was TLC, <laughs> the, fan, the fan mail tour, and Destiny's Child opened for them this was the original destiny's child literally like months before all of the like restructuring happened <laughs> so i remember just being so excited because fan mail was the like the thing um it was i, I still listen to that album to this day and it just brings me so much joy and I miss Left Eye. I'm sad that she is not with us anymore. I know. My first concert was also in Hartford. It was at the, I think it was called the Meadowlands at that time. It was Alanis Morissette. And the Alanis! she had just come out and the tickets were only like $35. And my mom had a lineup at Strawberries in New Haven or Hamden. Strawberries. I remember Strawberries. Strawberries. The record store <laughs> to get the tickets. Yeah. And we went in like a limousine and I was like, we had, they were lawn tickets or whatever. But I remember thinking like my life had ended that I got to see Alanis Morissette back in the day. I saw Alanis like last year actually on her like Jagged Little Pill tour oh. or whatever. She still sounds great. I bet she She's does. Her voice is still top notch. It was great. Now on Twitter, you you wrote that you already have Mattel cinematic universe fatigue. Without talking about the movie in question, because of course we're supporting the the writer's strike and we're not promoting any particular film. Can you talk about what it means to have fatigue for something within the uh, public lexicon here? Yeah, I mean, I actually wrote about this in Wannabe and how everything seems to be IP now, intellectual mm -hmm. property. Um, and we are so afraid of things ending or things being a complete from beginning to end story that doesn't need to be replicated or doesn't need to be rebooted. And um, I think, you know, there are, there are definitely exceptions to this rule. Um, there are certain films and TV shows that I think are able to um, to skirt that in creative ways mm -hmm. because they approach, the creators will approach it honestly and not just as an easy cash grab. Mm -hmm. But more often than not, it is an easy cash grab. Mm -hmm. It is playing upon the public's um, willingness to succumb to nostalgia or the, like, the, the, lack of curiosity and seeking out new and original things, things that are not familiar. And I think what I see part of my job as a film critic to do is to guess, write about and talk about the things that people are actually watching because, you know, I want to be engaged with what the zeitgeist is dealing with. I also want to point people towards the smaller movies, the the up and coming filmmakers, the things that like might get buried on streaming um, that you may never heard of. And I also love to read those critics who are doing the same thing who so that I can hear about the things that maybe have passed by me because there's just so much content now. And it's like, it's not just the IP. It's just, there's just so much Um or there has been, of course, now with the writer's strike, this could be a full-on cultural reset. So we'll see. But um, I, <laughs> I am, I am just tired. I am the, <laughs> the the fact the fact that you know this new Mattel cinematic universe is going to be get a lot of proper like a lot of movies about properties that like I don't even think a lot of people cared about when they were of age to care about them. Um, <laughs> I think is you know they're taking the wrong lessons from these sort of big box office surprises um, that I think that, you know, we have to be wary of and have to be concerned about. I agree. You talked about the fact that we're not willing to, you know, as a culture, we're either not willing or given the opportunity to really explore new ideas and new thoughts. It's like something hits and then everybody just copies that thing. We see it also on Broadway. I mean, how many musicals are there about having a hard time in high school? It's like 11 <laughs> of them. There's like Dear Evan Hansen, Kimberly Akimbo, they're like Be More Chill. There's every type of weird guy having a hard time in high school musical. And I'm like, can we 
do something else. There's got to be something else. I mean, I need a tap number to keep me alive or something, or at least bring back the classics, maybe inspire people to write more symphonic music that's just like sweeping and vest in musicians the way that we maybe used to have a little bit more time or money or the people controlling entertainment weren't so willing to just churn out anything for the lowest price possible. Where I'm actually even more concerned than in like big media is with X, are we calling it? Are we going to call it X or are we going to just keep calling it Twitter? I'm, I'm, look, maybe when I'm actually talking about it in a professional capacity, I have to call it whatever <laughs> it wants to be called, but I'm going to call it a Twitter. Like, let's, let's be real. This is, this is not. <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm not a tweeter or, and I never was, but I am a TikToker. And one thing I'll tell you about TikTok is the success of the app is exclusively, in my mind, it is exclusively the trends are set by Black TikTok. They're set by Black creators, the trends that come out, the foods that come out. A lot of it is just driven by Black creativity. And what I'm worried about is Twitter losing Black Twitter, which is such an important part of the overall conversation and giving voice to the community. Yeah. How are you feeling about this? I mean, I'm like a white woman who's concerned about it. I imagine you might be more <laughs> concerned about it. I mean, I'm I'm still sadly mostly on Twitter just because that's where I spent years to get to the amount of followers I have on there. And like, I've noticed now that they're kind of slowly de- uh, decreasing because people are leaving Twitter. But I'm like, I'm I am literally that meme of the the orchestra playing on the Titanic, like I'm going to stay on it until the very end probably. Um, But I do, I have yet to find that same sort of community of black Twitter on blue sky where Mm -hmm. I'm at now. Mm -hmm. And also blue sky is just like, it's still in its early phases and it's glitchy. And they're apparently people are trying to make blue sky call it skeeting when you post something. And I'm like, do we, did we not, do we not know what that word I means? was also calling it blue ski and literal actual AOC was like, please stop embarrassing me. It's blue sky. <laughs> was like... Oh man. Um, I, I feel like threads is for me like a little bit, it's a little better. And just in part because like it automatically imported a ton of my followers already. So it that wasn't was like key. I Yes, I wasn't like I was starting from complete scratch. Um, but I don't know. I Maybe it's just good that we, at, at some point, don't really have a central social media place anymore. It kind of democratizes things a little bit more. Um, it'll force us to find more creative ways or different ways to interact with the people we actually want to interact with and maybe not have to interact with the people we don't want to. So Twitter... I mean, it, it's it's a mess. It's a it's a hot mess, uh, but it's a hot mess that I haven't been able to quit quite yet. So, let's skip from today to your book, which is a collection of essays that really do reflect on growing up in your childhood and pop culture. You also call the essay collection a reckoning. What got you excited to write this book, and why do we need a reckoning for that era of pop culture? One of the cases I make in the book is that we are all. Like, unless we somehow grew up in a household where our parents completely cut us off from any sort of culture, TV, music, whatever, um, we were all impacted by it um, from a very young age. And it follows, carries with us throughout into adulthood. And I think that part of being an adult, a person living in this world, this very like screwy world that we live in, and that seems to be getting scarier by the day, um, is having to unlearn a lot of the things that you learned when you were younger, whether um, consciously or subconsciously. And so I really, because pop culture is like what I do, it is what I talk about and what I, um, what I've has really affected my life in so many different ways. Um, I really wanted to be able to sort of chronicle my own sort of learning and unlearning of certain things and whether it's misogyny, whether it's ra- like racism, anti-blackness, um, or, or just like how I handle my my sexuality and how I interact with people and how I deal with critics and 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 fellow critics and also critics of my work. Mm. Um, and so I think that you know this is part memoir; it's very personal, but I think a lot of it is super relatable because 
you know, first of all, a lot of us grew up in the 90s and in the aughts and are kind of right now looking back on some of those things and feeling like, oh, what But like, was how was I affected by this? Like, I can't believe I thought this about, you know, someone like Britney Spears. And now I feel like actual empathy for her and I like want her to be safe. And I can't believe we treated her like this for so long. Um, I think a lot of us are having those moments and really you know, trying to unpack and unlearn the ways that they affected us. Um, and of course, that doesn't necessarily mean throwing everything out and saying like, this was trash or like, this should never have been made because I don't believe in that either. I do believe that, you know, as as screwed up as certain things might be um, that were created and as like terrible when you look back on it, it's like, I can't believe this was so racist or, you know, so sexist back then. I think that doesn't necessarily mean the whole thing is bad. Um, one of the things I actually talk about is is Mean Girls. And I love Mean Girls. Like, can put it back and forth. Absolutely love it. But there are parts about it. And there's parts about, you know, Tina Fey and her brand of comedy that I've had to go back and be like, mm, what are we doing here, girl? And if you look at any artist, really, that's going to be true. Um, you know, sometimes it's more true for some artists than it is for others, but I don't think there's any piece of art or piece of pop culture that is com- is like without criticism and, and beyond criticism. I think that that is part of what being a smart consumer is um, and a smart uh, lover of the arts is. And that's what I wanted to really demonstrate within Wannabe as I sort of reckoned with all of these different things and, and ways of um, engaging with pop culture. Do you ever get hit with a cringy memory of your 13-year-old self out of nowhere and suddenly you're panic sweating and laughing at the same time? Don't, don't worry, don't worry. We all get that. It's because being an adolescent is one of the most visceral shared experiences we have as people. And we want to talk about it. Join me, Penn Badgley, and my two friends, Nava and Sophie, on Podcrushed as we interview celebrity guests about the joys and horrors of being a teenager and how those moments made them who they are today. New episodes of Podcrushed are out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Two young fathers are shot to death outside an iconic Utah restaurant. I said, your dad has been hurt really bad. The grief was disorienting for those left behind until one choice changed everything. I just remember writing this letter and it wasn't me writing it. Can a personal decision shape generations? We're all falling for this guy's trick. I'm Amy Donaldson. Season two of The Letter, Ripple Effect, is available now. Follow us at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the chapters in your book... um, wannabe as in the spice girl song wannabe i was thinking back um when they came out that was such a big deal right these girl groups and i have known that i was gay since i was like eight years old but so you're trying to like find your place within these stereotypes that like lou perlman or any of the people who put together the boy bands and girl bands gave us as like the sporty one the fun one the whatever and it wasn't very sporty so i couldn't be sporty spice which was like really the one that i would like most align with how most lesbians were probably like that one's for me <laughs> i aligned yeah. with with jerry hollowell like because in my mind uh, because i didn't have like a natural attraction to boys i felt like i had to like go so far and be sexy so that i could like somehow hide the fact that i wasn't into them at all and i was gay and so i went through like a hoe phase as a child which is not to mean that i was like doing anything but i was like aligning myself with these like overly sexualized characters because to me everything i was doing was overcompensating for the fact that i didn't feel like the other girls so it was like okay i have to go to the most extreme version she's the one who's like the sexy spice or whatever but for you you had an experience where you like were assigned a spice girl whether you wanted to be that one or not can you talk about that when i was in elementary school i was one of my sister and i were like maybe one of a hand like a literal handful of like maybe 5 to 6 7 Black kids at the entire school of like 400, 500 kids. Um, so I was surrounded by white people. And um, playing the Spice Girls when you're the one Black friend, that means that you are going to be told that you are Scary Spice. And like you, I wanted to be Ginger. Uh, like I was like, Ginger, Ginger, all the way. 
And so in that uh, essay where I talk about this, it's about the idea of the Black friend mm. in popular culture. And um, I, <laughs> this is why I mentioned Pen15, which mm. is the brilliant millennial <laughs> show um, uh, where two, uh, about like two women who basically kind of reliving parts, like dramatizing their younger selves when they are in middle school in the early aughts. And there's an episode where Maya, played by Maya Erskine, um, who is an Asian American woman, ha- half white, half Asian. Um, she's assigned scary spice while the kids are playing because she's the only non-white person there. And I related to that so hard. Like, I was just like, I can't believe this is also happening to someone who's not even Black. (laughs) But because she is the other in the group of friends, then that's who she gets to play. And I really wanted to sort of unpack how there's different levels to the Black friend in film, TV, and literature, um, but also how being a kid who grew up in Connecticut and who had a lot of white friends, mostly white friends, how I sort of played that role mm-hmm. in my own life and how I had to kind of learn how to consider myself the main character instead of like the Black sidekick, you know? Mm-hmm. Um Maybe seeing more Black kids in leading roles in those teen movies and shows that I was watching would have been helpful, but who knows? I was also just like, I was really shy. I was bad at talking to people, generally speaking. So (laughs) it's a combination of like dealing with white people in a mostly in like a predominantly white environment, but also me being the type of person who like would clam up in situations where I didn't feel comfortable. Um, so and that's just reinforced by white culture, though, also, because everything that white folks are seeing is the reaffirming that there is the strong, silent black woman who's carrying everything and going to make it okay, right? So it's like white culture is looking to black women for comfort, for guidance, but also to be used and to advance in essentially white success. And we see that in all the movies, right up through and including like Clueless and Cher and Dion and the way that Dion had her own stuff she was dealing with, but Cher's trivial issue became the the pinpoint that she had to fix throughout this for her and like always be affirming of her and always be lifting her up. And it's like, yeah, how do you unlearn that when you grow up with that? And then your idea of like, well, I'm inclusive is I have friends that are all different colors and I have friends from all different backgrounds and, and gender expressions. And it's like, yeah, but are they your friend friend or are they there because you need them to affirm you as like a person who's a good white person or who's like a, an accepting white person or whatever? It's it's a tough thing to face. Yeah. I always say like, what did like, now that I'm of age where a lot of my friends are getting married, I'm like, what did your wedding party look like? Or like how many, how many white people were at your party versus like not white people? Cause that's kind of, that's, if you're invited to a wedding, usually that means like you're important Mm -hmm. beyond just the sort of superficial layers, you know? And I don't know. I know a lot of white progressives and I still see a lot of, you know, mostly white weddings happening. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) White weddings at historic homes and gardens, right? Like I used to live in DC and I would get these invitations to Oatland's plantation for a wedding. And I was like, girl, we cannot be doing this. Yeah. I'm sorry to anyone who got married at a historic home and gardens. That's a plantation, girl. It, uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you can't. You can't. We can't try to make it better. Oh my gosh. And in the book, you get into other things, too. Like, you get into why Nola Darling from She's Gotta Have It is such an important character or archetype in pop culture. Nola is the sexually liberated 20-something in Spike Lee's 1986 feature debut, and you call her the blueprint. Why was she such an important character for pop culture? Well, you mentioned earlier that you kind of went through a hoe phase. Um, oh, yeah. But like, a but fake I went through phase. I didn't actually hook up with anyone, but I made them think I would. <laughs> yes. And, and I went through like a literal hoe phase. Like, I, I actually that. did. You got uh, to. <laughs> but um, yeah, in that essay, I that's me sort of wrestling with my uh, self internalized misogyny that, like, look, we're all born with because it's impossible not to be born in, with that if you live in this society. Um, and how I kind of, uh, sort of similar to you actually, be like, I would, I wanted to sort of overcompensate. I, I learned early on that, like, being a woman or being a girl was something that's considered weak or weaker than being a boy or a man. And so, um, once I got to the age of being, you know, a tween, teenager exploring my sexuality, exploring romance and all those things. 
I really wanted to be what I thought a typical man would be like um, in those situations. The one who is, you know, uh, has complete control and power is the one who's not going to call you until you call them. Um, is not going to show too much interest, probably has other people on the side, they're seeing whatever. And Nola Darling was kind of like that, the female embodiment of that in many ways. Like her and Samantha Jones for me and on Sex and the City were kind of those two examples of women who were just like having a lot of sex, doing whatever they wanted to do and not caring about the men in their lives and like being very proud of that and open about that. And to be clear, like, I think there is something refreshing about having those types of uh, perspectives in popular culture and and seeing women who are like unapologetic about who they are and what like what they want mm-hmm. um but at the same time I think there's a way there's there's a way in which we kind of like o- try to over compensate or over assign too much power like actual power mm-hmm. uh, that like it doesn't necessarily translate to real tangential power in a world where like you're still even when you're able to do those things you're still a woman and you're still to considered to some extent not to be um you're not taken as seriously as mm-hmm. the men around you um and i also like i relate it to once i once i found you know a lot of feminist theories and thinkers like bell hooks and how they were really very um vocal about this desire to act like men mm-hmm. um and when really like that's not that's not what we should be aspiring to do we should be aspiring to really take down the patriarchy and and um not hold those sorts of aspects of masculinity as something to aspire to mm-hmm. um and it's look it's all of our popular culture it's like those characters but it's also um beyonce you know singing run the world when it's like Okay. No, also we don't. singing it's- lemonade, though. Also, <laughs> I know. Yeah, an interesting contradiction because she's like, on the one hand, she's got a lot of progressive ideals, and like, she's clearly the like bigger star at this point that in the in her like heterosexual yep. marriage. But then at the same time, she's been so devoted to this marriage in a way that feels very conservative. Yeah. Uh, right. So, so yeah, I, 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 I think. That's another example of me trying to sort of lay out, okay, here are the ways that pop culture taught me to hate my gender or like to look down upon my gender. And now here are the ways that pop culture also has helped me um, unlearn that to some extent. And I'm still unlearning a lot of that. But I think like, especially the, 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 I don't know if we've had a reckoning with the girl bossification of everything, but I do think the the critiques that have been thrown about about girl boss and all of that kind of very superficial stuff um, has been sort of um, heartening to see. And um, yeah, we're we're I feel like we're we're wrestling with it as a culture to some extent, not fully. But I had to reckon with the fact that you could be gay as a female because I only saw gay men on television in successful roles. You know what I mean? Like it was like Will and Grace and they were funny and he was like a big lawyer or whatever. And like you always only saw like very silly but beloved, cherished, accepted sidekick or not. That was the most acceptance I had seen for gay people was this like overly comedic or like rich white male gay. And so when I was trying to figure out being gay, I was like, well, I guess I want to be like a gay man. I'm like real into Broadway and I like, I'm not good at sports and like, I don't know, all my friends are gay and and all my mom's friends were gay men. And so I became like a gay man in a lesbian's body. And they used to say this to me all the time. And I'd be like, I have no possibility models. I don't know anyone who is like a successful, beloved lesbian character. We had Rosie O'Donnell and we had Ellen, but they both led extremely controversial, difficult lives where I watched my mom say things that she is now not proud of and we've gotten through and we love her for that. Gay for Marine. But like there was a lot of difficulty in facing what it would be like to be a gay woman in the world because there wasn't any representation of power. They were represented as like either super perverted and they couldn't be trusted if they were characters in movies or like somehow it was a phase or somehow it was a performance or somehow they were like the the villain and everything all the time. And I'm grateful that now we do have positive role models that are lesbians, non-binary, gender non-conforming, queer, bisexual even because even the bisexuals were represented as like – 
in their whole phase and confused and oftentimes on drugs or like not doing great until some male character rescues them. Do you think we're doing better now with representing queer culture? As someone who is not queer, I feel weird saying whether we're doing better, but it does seem like we are doing better. But then again, the bar for so long was so low. So like, you know, I think that there are still... I think that there are still plenty of examples of queer characters kind of still feeling just that very sidekick sort of role. Um, Something like, uh, now granted I have not watched it beyond the first season, um, but something like Sex Education, I think um, the TV show, the sort of coming of age show, the Black uh, queer character on that show. It's kind of like that, but I've heard that the characters opened up a bit more mm. over the season. So that seems like perhaps an improvement. Um, but uh, when you look at something like Dahmer, which right. came out last year and which got a lot of flack because of the fact that it was people accused it of exploiting these very real murders of mostly queer and uh, black and brown people. Um, I think that, and sure, Ryan Murphy is behind it, you know, but he's a, he's a gay man, but, you know, as we've seen, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a difference. There is a difference between cis white gay men of a certain age and everyone else who's queer, (laughs) you know, they're like, so I think that there's definitely been there's been some headway. We're definitely seeing, it's good to know that we see these conversations happening where trans people can actually play trans characters. And that's, you know, if someone like Scarlett Johansson or someone says they're going to play that character, there is an immediate pushback, um, which wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. Um, But, you know, there's still a very, very long way to go. And You know, one of the things I'm most concerned about, especially with these strikes, is that for everyone who has been marginalized in the entertainment industry um, and was just starting to see gains in access, in representation, in just the the breadth of different types of stories that are being told about them on screen, I do worry that we're going to kind of take a couple steps backwards um, because this is usually what happens. It's like the people who are kind of the most vulnerable are always the ones who get affected by this the most. Um, So time will tell. Uh, But I don't think we're going to go back to, you know, 25, 30 years ago, you know, when people were upset about basic instincts um, for, for, for good reasons. Uh, Those movies like, made me though. Sometimes my mom would put on a little rated R movie and I would be allowed to watch it for a period of time. But I remember watching Mulholland Drive, which had lesbians in it. And I was like, that's hot. Okay. That's where I'm going. I mean, I still think there's, I still think there's like good things about something like basic instinct or, you know, um, like I, I, but like, I can also understand cruel intentions we could do a whole episode on that. Dude. <laughs> I do want to, I know we'll do, we'll do it maybe for premium. We'll see. But I, I want to jump back into the book for a quick second because we have a, we have a clip from the book for the listeners so that they can hear directly from you about a time that things were going really great. And this was 2016. But 2016 was also a great year for Blackness, culturally speaking. It might have even been a peak year for Blackness. These are just a few of the things that were released or made their debut in that dumpster fire of a 366-day period. Beyonce's Lemonade, Solange's A Seat at the Table, Queen Sugar, Atlanta, Insecure, Moonlight, Rihanna's Anti, 13th. There is so much to unpack there. 2016, I mean, politically, so so difficult. Just such a turning point, as you said, that defined American culture and will define American culture for years. How did all of this creative work shape the U.S. at that time? And and do you think it was because of the hot political environment that such incredible art was being created, forged in this, in this difficult, fiery time? Um, well, I don't think it's because of it, because art takes a long time, generally speaking, to create. And you can imagine something like Lemonade having been in the works for, you know, at least a couple of years. Because when did we find out that Jay-Z might have cheated on her? <laughs> it was like, you know, the elevator the elevator situation was 2014. So, so yeah, I think that 
they're not directly linked, but I do think that they like there's a combination of the small inroads and big inroads that were being made behind the scenes when it comes to filming TV, especially for black creators. Um, you know, Shonda Rhimes had been in the game at that point for over a decade or uh, thanks to Grey's Anatomy and she had become like her own sort of <laughs> cinematic universe, uh, TV yes. universe. Shonda um, Land. <laughs> yeah. And I think that opened the doors for, you know, someone like Donald Glover, someone like Issa Rae to, be able to create the shows that they created and get the support, the financial support that they were able to get to, to make those shows. Um, and then of course, like Rihanna was in her, her she was still making music. She wasn't, I, I don't think, I don't think Fenty had quite been released yet. So she wasn't like, I'm just going to become a billionaire and not make music anymore. She was still, you know, she still cared about music to some extent. Uh, but I do think it's really, it's kind of kismet in a way that all of that sort of happened at the same time that the the Obama years were kind of becoming less rose-colored and um, we were kind of reckoning with, okay, maybe this wasn't as like hopeful as a time as we had thought it would be in 2008. Um, and I think that it's really kind of, um, nice to know that that existed alongside all the terrible things that were happening. Mm -hmm. um, and it to me, it says that like blackness can and does thrive even when things are like at the lowest points or, you know, one of the lowest points, at least of my lifetime um, in in history. And I think that's the beauty in many ways, of, of Black art and Black culture. And you write in the book about how cultural theft in Hollywood and appropriation of Black culture and mainstream is is just rampant and provides additional difficulty. How are Black artists taking care of themselves and making sure that they're the ones that are holding that, that IP? I mean, I see a lot of Black artists creating these uh, networks amongst themselves and really promoting each other and their works. And I think that's part of what um, has been really great to see with someone like Ava DuVernay, um, Issa Rae, and, and Donald Glover. They have been sort of creating spaces, not just for their own work, but for other people to make work. And, and even, even Lena Waithe, who is someone who... <laughs> I have feelings about her work, but like, there's one thing, her and Tyler Perry, like I have feelings about their, their work, but like one thing that they're both going to do, I mean, Tyler Perry apparently does not hire writers, but like he does hire people in other capacities. And he was for a while, the one who was giving all of our best black performers, including Viola Davis and Cicely Tyson, like roles and meaty ish roles. Um, so I think that, you know, it's really nice to see that there are, there is support, there are support systems and they are trying a lot of these, you know, people in film and TV, especially are really trying to make sure that they're not the only ones and that they can bring people up with them because, you know, that's the only way that we're going to continue to see different roles, weirder things happening, not just the sort of the things that we come to expect from black art, but people like Boots Riley mm. and um, Terrence Nance doing really weird, different things um, and having the platforms and the spaces to be able to do those things. You also talk in the book about how it's very difficult to be a black critic of pop culture because people can come at you for your critique and say, well, you're just canceling me when in fact you're just providing critique and accountability in some places. How do you deal with that? Um, I mostly ignore it. Uh, <laughs> You're brave. That's great. <laughs> I cry about it every time. I <laughs> yeah, Cause like, it's like, what am I supposed to do? Like you're, you're already coming at me from a very unreasonable place, which is a misunderstanding of what my role is and a misunderstanding of like what it means to enjoy art. Uh, if you like, if you like something and a critic critiques it, and says something that you don't like about it, that's okay. <laughs> like, it's not, like, it shouldn't affect you. Like, it's not, this is not uh, going to end the world. Like, I think people often approach it if I say something negative, it's like I killed their cat or something. Like, it's like a personal affront. And it's like, no, we just disagree. Or I came away with 
from this with a different perspective. And, you know, this happened to me as recently as the Little Mermaid remake. Um, I wrote a review for NPR and I was not kind to it. And I, you know, I did, I had some, I had some nice things to say about it, but I had people saying that calling me anti-Black for, you know, putting down, in quotes, putting down a movie uh, that starred a Black princess, Halle Bailey. Um, and to me, representation is not everything. In fact, that's just like the baseline. Mm-hmm. I, am I ha- like, I wish the best for Halle Bailey. Like, I have nothing against her. She has a beautiful voice. She is very talented. Um, but that movie was not it. It mm-hmm. was... It, it was just another example of Disney going back to its vault and cutting and pasting and adding like a little bit of newness here. And what new was added was not to me worth all the money and time that was put into that project. Um, and I think I have a responsibility as a critic to be able to say that honestly and be honest about how I feel about it. And as I say in the book, black art is not fragile. And especially the reason why I pointed to 2016 as like a year of peak blackness and also this time that we're living in as like being especially fruitful for black creativity is because we don't have to operate from the same sort of scarcity mindset that we did 50, 60 years ago when the only people who were able to star in major Hollywood movies were Harry Belafonte mm-hmm. and Sidney Poitier. Like, we're not in that era anymore. And so I think it's a disservice to Black art to treat it as though it's something very fragile. And and I think that part of being, like, living in a progressive time and being progressive and um, supporting Black art is to also be honest about it and not treat it with kids' gloves. Is there anything that you hope folks take away from the book? Um. I hope they laugh. I hope they um, see a little bit of themselves in it and give themselves more grace to like the things they like and dislike the things they don't like, um, but also allow other people to disagree with them <laughs> about the things that they don't like and do like. Um, and yeah, I hope they I hope they learn some stuff because I also this is a, you know, it's a memoir and it's, it's a, it's a critical exercise in many ways, but also like I did a lot of research for this and there's things that I learned while writing the book that I maybe wasn't aware of before. Um, and I hope that, you know, they get to take away just a little bit more of an understanding of like what the role of a critic is, um, as I see it at least. And, um, and also just like what it means to, to love and enjoy art. We have the book here. It's called Wannabe, Reckoning with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. And we didn't get to talk about it, but there's a whole chapter in here called Kenny G Gets It. So you need to pick up the book <laughs> so you can read all about that and and unravel the mystery of what it is that Chen- Kenny G gets. Aisha, thank you so much for being here with me. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. My fellow nutmegger. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Big thanks to Aisha Harris for that conversation and for all the great reflections on the iconic pop culture moments that stood out for us. I think she is just such a courageous reporter and critic. Something I take away from this interview is that she really wants creators to fully express themselves and for Black artists in particular to not operate from what she calls a scarcity mindset. I also love the reminder that as much as we learn from the 90s and early 2000s pop culture – We have a lot to unlearn from the harmful and offensive behaviors we saw on screen or heard in music back then. Be sure to check out Aisha's debut book. It's once again called Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. You can learn more about our Book of the Month picks and listen to Wannabe in its entirety on Apple Books. And be sure to tune into next week's episode where we dig into the headlines you may have missed. Please leave us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Follow me at Under the Desk News on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. And we, of course, have the Patreon now, patreon.com slash under the desk news. And guess what, friends? If all of that is not enough for you, there is even more Be Interesting with Lemonada Premium. Subscribers get exclusive access to bonus content, like New York Times bestselling science author Mary Roach telling me if there are any topics that are unroachable. 
and what she's working on next. Subscribe now in Apple Podcasts. The Interesting is a Lemonada Media Original. Our producers are Chrissy Pease, Catherine Barnes, and Martine Macias. Our VP of Weekly Programming is Steve Nelson. Executive producers are Stephanie Whittles-Wax and Jessica Cordova-Kramer. Mix-in scoring is by Veronica Rodriguez, and music is by Seth Applebaum. Please help others find the show by rating and reviewing wherever you listen. And follow us across all social platforms at Vitaspear, at Under the Dust News, and at Lemonada Media. If you want more Be Interesting, subscribe to Lemonada Premium only on Apple Podcasts, and follow the show wherever you get your podcasts, or... Listen ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership. People love to pretend that there are simple formulas for living your best life now. Eat this and you won't get sick. Manifest it and everything will work out. But there are some things you can choose and some things you can't. And it's okay that life isn't always getting better. I'm Kate Bowler, and on Everything Happens, I speak with kind, smart, funny people about life as it really is. Beautiful, terrible, and everything in between. Let's be human together. Everything Happens is available wherever you get your podcasts. Last Day is a show about the moments that change us. I just don't think I will ever get used to this. I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and I have had one of these moments. We all have. So let's unpack the chaos that is our human existence together. I don't believe things happen for a reason. I don't believe the universe has a plan. Each week, I sit down with a new guest to explore happy, sad stories of transformation. It's leaning far, far into the pain. That's what it is. Listen to Last Day wherever you get your podcasts.